Our liberties we prize and our rights we will maintain. This is Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast, where we tell stories about the contribution Iowans and the state of Iowa has made to advance the civil rights movement. Past stories are being told, present actions will be highlighted, and preparation for the future will be discussed. Here is your host, Eric Ganyange. Welcome to Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. This is part two of our conversation on Iowa Underground Railroad, and my guest is Dave Holmgren. Dave is a researcher and historian at the Iowa Historical Society in Des Moines, Iowa. He holds a bachelor degree in history from Drake University, bachelor of science in elementary education from Iowa State, master's in history from Iowa State, and a master's in education administration from University of North Texas. Dave wrote numerous articles on Iowa history and a book called Abolitionists and Free Thinkers with the Underground Railroad in Clinton County, Iowa. You talked a little bit about Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. How much do you think that law and Dred Scott in 1857 contributed to the Civil War? It definitely made a contribution. Again, I think, I think the, the two major events that really facilitated uh, growth of the Underground Railroad and the ignition of the Civil War in 1861, even more than the Fugitive Slave Act, mm-hmm. was this Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 and the Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court in 1857. Yes, it, it did have the effect of spurring the Underground Railroad. Helping slaves to freedom was illegal, was a crime. It was a federal crime, federal, federal offense. Crime. Mm-hmm. Why do you think these guys did it? What drove them? I think, as with most human beings, it's always a combination of things. So let's take a look at the numbers of them. If you look at the evolution of Christianity, particularly in the century or two following uh, the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment in Europe and in early America— you see this gradual movement away from hellfire and brimstone religion, preachings of Jonathan Edwards, toward more of a humanitarian and egalitarian form of Christianity. For the first, what, sixteen or 1,700 years after the life of Jesus, there was no organized opposition anywhere in the Christian world to slavery. So why did it begin to turn against slavery? I think a lot of it had to do in roots in Western culture going way back before the mid-19th century. If you want to go even back to the Renaissance in Europe in the 13 or 1400s, you, it's the rise of humanism, more of a focus on life on earth, not a denial of Christian orthodoxy or yeah. teachings, but more of an emphasis on who we are on the planet here, just a very gradually developing view of the brotherhood of all humanity. Mm. And you see this beginning to permeate particularly the the Protestant denominations in the 19th century. So that's the religious part. I've also talked about free thought and free thinkers in America. You see a growing secularism in America even at that time. A lot of people think of secularism as something as a phenomenon of the last hundred years in our lifetime. Uh, But actually, many aspects of secularism uh, and humanism uh, were growing and growing very well. Uh, Even in the 18th century, you look at people like uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was very liberal in his thinking, who was a, who was a very secular man. Not hostile to religion uh, or the Christian faith, but being motivated more in his behavior and his views of life from secular perspectives. And so to come back to your question, why were these people doing this? Mm. It was a combination of very high idealism, but also it had to do with uh, the rise of capitalism in America. The economic thought that said that uh, freedom builds a a society faster and better than slavery. 
So I would say it was a combination of evolving religious views, the rise of secular influences in America, the rise of capitalism, and I'm probably leaving out other causes. But there has to be an element of idealism because there were a lot of people in America who just, they just, I don't like slavery. Yeah. You know, uh, but am I going to get involved? Am I going to violate federal law? No. So there's that element of idealism, of taking your values seriously Mm. and taking them directly and putting them into operation. In Iowa, at least, they were people from all walks of life. We had two governors that were, in one way or another, were connected with the Underground Railroad or had extreme abolitionist sympathies. Oh, really? Yeah. We had members of the legislature who were openly active as station agents. Wow. These people were making laws for the state of Iowa and secretly violating the Federal Fugitive Slave Act. (laughs) We had mayors. We had county supervisors. We had teachers. We had college presidents. We also had local merchants. We had lots and lots of farmers. We had even some people from the laboring classes in Iowa. You know, it's hard to classify in Iowa who these people were because they came from all walks of life. They came from different areas of the Union. They were men and women. Uh, It's it's very hard to characterize them exactly. So how do you describe their motivations when you're talking about such a diverse group of people? And I can imagine the lawmakers, their involvement had to be highly, highly secretive. Let's talk about the governor's room. I'm going to talk first about, about James W. Grimes. I'm going to quote some letters he wrote to his wife when he was governor. Okay. Grimes had uh, been a Whig as a young man, but the Whig party was falling apart as he was elected to the state assembly in 1851. When I say state assembly, I'm talking about the legislature, sometimes called the general assembly. He was located in Burlington. In February 1854, this is just right after Douglas had uh, introduced the Kansas-Nebraska Act in the, in the National Congress in Washington, the Whig Party nominated And we talk, we're talking about Stephen Douglas from Illinois. Right, that, yeah. right. Yeah, the, the senator who introduced the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act. Uh, it was just the following month that the Whig Party in Iowa nominated Grimes to be governor, and he won the election. And he won it on, among other things, he talked about his problems with slavery. He took office late in 1854. He served just about three years until uh, his second term ended. He was the first and only Whig governor of Iowa. And he, of course, later became a Republican and was a U.S. senator uh, from Iowa. But while he was governor, this is while he's sitting as governor of Iowa. It's a private letter to his wife. And he says, I shall certainly furnish no aid to the man-stealers. And it has been determined that the Negro shall have able counsel and a resort to all legal means for release, before any other is resorted to. I am sorry I am governor of the state, for although I can and shall prevent the state authorities and officers from interfering in aid of the marshal, yet, if not in office, I am inclined to think I should be a lawbreaker. (laughs) This is the governor of Iowa in a private letter to his wife. Now, what also happened the following year, this is... Not, not, a, not a, a quote, but a story about what Grimes probably did. We don't know absolutely for sure. But he was, he was determined to help the people from what we call the New England Immigrant Aid Company. We're talking about free state settlers who were coming from New England. They were purposely relocating in Kansas. They would come right through Iowa on their way to Kansas, again, with the objective of trying to build a free state majority so that Kansas would come in as a free state. And there was one situation where they were traveling through Iowa, and they were coming right through uh, Iowa City, uh, where the state capital was at that time, and something very strange had happened. 
the key to the state arsenal had been mysteriously left on top of Governor Grimes' desk, right out in the open. Mm. 1,500 rifles and muskets were taken from the state arsenal and given to the free state settlers. Who would have left that key on the governor's desk? Probably the governor himself. Probably the governor himself. Mm -hmm. We don't know. That's interesting. Now, was he the same guy, I could be wrong, when John Brown did his thing at the Harper's Ferry? There was two, was it Coppock brothers from Iowa? Coppocks, yes. Coppock brothers? Right, Edwin and Barkley. And there was one who fled and came back to Iowa. That was Barkley. Was Barkley? Yeah. Then the marshals was looking for him. Yes, and that's that's under the next, uh, excuse me, two governors later. And, okay, okay. And that's okay, under cool. Samuel Kirkwood, but let's talk about him in a moment. I just want to say a little about Grimes. When his second term as governor expired early uh, in 1858, he ran for the U.S. Senate as a Republican. Like many other Whigs, he switched his allegiance from the dissolving Whig Party in the mid-1850s to the Republicans. He's elected. He served several terms. Uh, during the Civil War, he moved, he was, he was pretty much a free soiler up until the time the, the war began, despite his obvious hostility to slavery. He wasn't really what you quite call an abolitionist. But he moved toward abolitionism, as so many Northerners, and particularly Republicans, did during the Civil War years. After Lincoln's assassination, he starts, at a, at a minor level, start reversing gears. I don't know the reasons why, but he, he voted against the Freedmen's Bureau Act. And the most remarkable thing he did was in 1868, when Andrew Johnson, the president who succeeded Lincoln, was impeached by radical Republicans who were trying to remove, remove him from office. Yeah. Recall that um, in the Senate trial, uh, it requires a two-thirds vote of the Senate to convict. Yeah. The vote against Andrew Johnson was 35 to 18. Yeah. Was he just one it, off? One. Yeah. James W. Grimes was one of those people what? who voted to acquit Andrew Johnson. You ever heard of a book called Profiles and Courage? No. President John F. Kennedy, when he was still a U.S. senator, published that book. And it was exactly as the title indicates. He was looking at leading political figures who openly did something out of their idealism, but it torched their political careers. After James W. Grimes voted to acquit, if he had voted to convict, Andrew Johnson would have been removed from office. Mm -hmm. But he voted to acquit. And every single one of the Republican senators who voted to acquit no longer won any election to any public office. Some were defeated for re-election, some just retired. Grimes never served in elective office again. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And is the town of Grimes named after him? <laughs> you know, I should know that because my, my mother's family comes from Grimes. Okay. But, you know, frankly, I don't know. It, huh. I, I would say there's a good possibility if that's, okay. that's the case. I, I don't know. Now, yeah. you were talking about the Coppics, okay, yeah. and John Brown. Okay, yeah. So let's go to that one. Okay, by this time, Grimes had left the governorship. A man named Ralph Lowe, another Republican, served a single two-year term. Uh, in the fall of 1859, Samuel J. Kirkwood is elected governor. He comes into office January 1st of 1860. Well, John Brown's insurrection at Harper's Ferry was in October, mm. and Brown was hanged in December. Among those that were hanged for their involvement was Edwin Coppock, who was from the Springdale area, Iowa. The, the Quaker area. Mm. If you know where Iowa City is, mm -hmm. you, just, you just go about 10 miles east into Cedar County, and that's West Branch and Springdale. And those, were, those were, but very strongly Quaker at that time. And the Coppocks were from that area. Edwin was caught at Harper's Ferry, and he was hanged. But the brother, Barkley, he was up in Pennsylvania. He was part of the conspiracy. He was in on the planning. He just didn't happen to be present at, at Harper's Ferry. So when the news comes out of the insurrection and the quick collapse of the insurrection, 
he takes off and speeds across West Iowa as fast as he can go. So he gets to Springdale. Like I said, Kirkwood becomes governor on January 1st. A guy named Hamilton Camp comes into his office. Now, by 1860, we're talking about the Capitol building in Des Moines, not the one that is there now, but the first Capitol building, which was built very close by where the existing Capitol building is now. Hamilton Camp came from Governor John Letcher of Virginia. Remember that the insurrection was in Virginia. Now mm-hmm. it's Harper's Ferry is now in West Virginia. It was, at that time, it was part of the whole state of Virginia. Yeah. And there was an extradition request mm-hmm. for Barclay Copy. Well, uh, Kirkwood was a lawyer. He takes a look at the extradition request. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. He points out three or four items that were not correct. You're going to have to go back to Virginia and get, get a new extradition request. Just to delay the process. To delay the process. Okay. Camp throws a fit, and there's yelling and carrying on going in the governor's office. Right outside the office are two members of the legislature who were both connected with the Underground Railroad. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the names of both of them. One of them uh, was a man named Jonathan Cattell, uh, who was from Cedar County, who later, I mean, he was in the legislature for years. He later became elected state official. Uh, he was on the scene for many years after the Civil War. They were sitting right outside Kirkwood's office when this argument is going on. Mm-hmm. It gives them time to go find a man living in the community. All we know is that his last name is William. And got him on a horse and said, ride as fast as you can go from here out to Springdale to warn Coppock. They're looking for him. That, that there are Virginia agents looking for him. Okay, And it took Williams about a day and a half. Of course, keep in mind, this is 1860. Um, there were railroads in Iowa. I don't think there were any trunk lines going west of Iowa City. So he was on horseback, just on basic dirt roads, going yeah. as fast as he could, probably about 120 miles to get from Des Moines to Springdale. He alerts Barkley Coppock, and Coppock, he gets out. So he was never caught. Uh, the sad end of the story, though, was that uh, right after the Civil War began, uh, he joins, I believe it was a volunteer regiment in Kansas, and some Confederates knew he was going to be on a troop train, and they were able to plant dynamite that exploded. It was either the train or the bridge, and Barclay Coppock was killed. Oh, boy. Yeah. But the point I'm making is that we had a second governor who was involved. With the Underground Railroad. In one way or another, involved with the Underground Railroad. They were were involved in protecting people. I mean, Kernwood was involved in protecting a guy who was part of John Brown's conspiracy for the insurrection at Harbor's Ferry. And this is a guy who's the governor of Iowa. Wow. What lessons is the Iowa Underground Railroad is teaching us today, do you think? I would say, to use a colloquial phrase, it's to teach people to think outside the box. Mm. Not to be a habitual uh, lawbreaker, Mm -hmm. but to listen to your own conscience. Think about the rights and the dignity of all human beings Mm. and be active in supporting them. Mm. Not passive, but being active. I think that is what the Underground Railroad was teaching because abolitionists, whether they were members of the Underground Railroad or not, were not popular people. They were considered a radical extremist group. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, throughout most of American history, the bulk of Americans don't have any use for people who break federal laws. Yeah. And so we're talking about people who uh, some psychologists talk about what they call self-actualizing people. Mm-hmm. People who their general development of their thinking in life goes beyond just, you know, I obey the laws. Why? Because the laws are the laws. They're people who think beyond about issues of justice yeah. and decency in society. 
Gandhi in India was a perfect example. Uh, his approach was a little bit different than the Underground Railroad because there was nothing underground about him. He yeah. did everything publicly and was subject to arrest, and he was arrested and jailed on a number of occasions in his life. So his approach was different. Mm. Martin Luther King in our own country was more on the lines of Gandhi. In fact, he read Gandhi and he understood Gandhi and his uh, nonviolent, non cooperation campaign were a lot like Gandhi, which also experienced success. Now, I'm going to somewhat give away my age. I'm old enough to remember Martin Luther King very, very well. I remember the divided public opinion in America mm -hmm. uh, towards uh, Dr. King in the, in the 1960s. There were people who admired the man. There were people who detested him. But here was a man who was self-actualizing like Gandhi was. Yeah. You know, you, you think outside the box. You think about deeper issues than just the law. Mm -hmm. You don't break the law lightly. There have to be solid moral and ethical reasons for doing so. Yeah. But that would characterize the people who are in the Underground Railroad yeah. 150 years ago. Yeah. I look at them as everybody had a place to play. It's like links in a chain. Absolutely. Right. Some of them, they say, I cannot be the abolitionist. But at least when I see the fugitive slaves, I can direct them where to go. And some people did that. Yeah. They were not active with the Underground Railroad. But if they see a black person in a rural area, who's this? Uh, because the rural Iowa was almost exclusively white. In fact, in 1860, Iowa had 600,000 residents. Only 1,000 were African American. Mm. That's one out of 600. See? Wow. So if you saw a black person which you were not likely to because fugitive slaves, like I say, they didn't, they didn't come into around. Iowa in the open. Yeah, uh, It was very discreet. It was very subtle. They were hiding on the way through. And, of course, usually there was a lot of thought before doing it because fugitive slaves understood the consequences. Mm -hmm. Not only could they be sold down south, but there could be major consequences, usually not death because they were valuable as property. It would be the same thing as you have a, a brand-new car that costs $30,000 and you get mad at it, so you destroy it. Most slave catchers wouldn't kill their slaves, although they had the legal right in many states to do that. There was wow. self-restraint in their own economic self-interest. They were yes. not restraining themselves for humanitarian reasons. But they could whip them. I mean, sometimes brutal whippings. Yes. Uh, you could whip a slave until he was literally unconscious. And there could be unintended deaths, too. They didn't intend to kill him, but they would whip him so badly. They were known to chop off the feet so that you couldn't run. I know, yeah. but I'm just talking about the brutality of the institution. Yeah. And people living today who like to look at the Old South in a romantic way, I'm talking about the way it really was. If you can predict the future, and I know it's, it's usually hard <laughs> to predict the future. If you can predict the future, what do you see the future of Iowa in terms of civil rights? Maybe, I don't know, 60 years from now? Well, I'm going to go with the prefix of your statement. You really can't predict the future. If you look at America as a nation and as a culture, we have long-term trends where for a whole era, the, the nation is moving toward more equality mm. and enhanced dignity for all of its citizens. Then we have periods of relapse and then new growth. I mean, perfect example would be radical changes coming out of the Civil War, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments. African Americans, when they weren't being persecuted in the southern states by the Ku Klux Klan and other organizations, uh, in many areas of the country, they were making significant strides in economic and social life here in America. But then, not after the Civil War, but uh, to end Reconstruction, compromises had to be made to try to heal the nation at a social and cultural level. And part of that was allowing the southern states 
to reinstitute their own governments, thus ending Reconstruction. Not immediately, but within a number of years after all the southern states were able to uh, put in what they often termed redeemer governments uh, because they felt being redeemed from the heavy hand of the federal government, uh, forcing the Civil War Amendments and the Civil Rights Act of 1875. You see, in essence, from my perspective, a backward movement as the Jim Crow laws are established and racial segregation is instituted in the southern states. But then you begin to see the resurrection at a very slow level of the civil rights movement in America. We think When we think of the civil rights, we think of the 1950s and 60s. It was actually in a conceptual phase as far back as the 1920s. You had uh, people like W.E.B. Dubois, who helped founded the, uh, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the yeah, NAACP, NWC. clear back in 1909. Mm-hmm. You see uh, Marcus Garvey and his movement in yeah. the 1920s. But then, you know, they say every cloud has a silver lining. Think about the horrors of Hitler and Nazism. But out of those horrors grew a number of good things. One of them was it discredited prevailing, quote-unquote, scientific theories of racial differences. Mm. Americans became gradually aware. There was no sudden stroke of lightning in the minds of Americans, but over, over a period of years, people began to see the dangers and the horrors of racism in the 20th century world. And that helped foster the very beginnings of a civil rights movement. Things that we would see as simple, but nevertheless beginnings. You know, the, uh, the Supreme Court knocking down the white primary in Texas in 1944. That's one example. Then you see President Truman, a man who came from Missouri, a former slave state, a man whose grandmother uh, got mad at him when he was 15 years old, and he, she saw him wearing a U.S. military uniform. She had been an old Confederate during the Civil War. Harry S. Truman, from this very conservative background, takes major steps to help foment the modern civil rights movement, uh, among which well, the best known would be when he desegregated the armed forces in 1948 yeah. and supported a civil rights act or some form of civil rights laws when he was running for his own term in office in 1948 when everybody thought he was going to lose the election to Thomas E. Dewey, the Republican nominee. I mean, nobody gave Truman any hope of winning that election. And despite that, that's the precise moment in time that he issued the order to desegregate the armed forces. Mm. I have some concerns about the status situation in America right now. It seems like in some ways, in terms of civil rights, we're going forward. In some ways, we're going back. You may recall Ken Burns' series on the Civil yeah, War. Yes. Do you remember uh, a black female historian named Barbara Fields? who was one of the historians that he consulted, and he, he taped a lot of her responses to his questions. At one point, she was kind of summing up kind of the same type of question you're, you're answering now. And she said, basically, that this is an open question for the future. She said, you know, if we lose our idealism, if we lose our respect for the dignity of human beings, which is possible, it could be that in the end, the Civil War was actually lost rather than won. Mm. At least words to that effect. Yeah. I would say very broadly... If you draw the longest of historical trajectory lines in American life, the movement over the past 300 years has generally been, shall we say, forward, for lack of a better term? Yes. Okay. But 60 years from now? I don't know. Nobody knows. It could be far better. It could be far worse. And, of course, new issues arise. Think think about the gay rights movement. That's true. I mean, that's something that has surfaced just in my lifetime. I'm amazed to see how people's attitudes, including my own, 
have changed just during my lifetime. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, what other issues are going to arise 60 years from now? Things that we may be aware of but not focusing on. Mm -hmm. And will people look back at us and say, what about a dunderheads back in the year 2021? Why weren't they thinking about this? Yeah. Why weren't they sensitive to this? The problem would be, at this moment in time, there seems to be not only a national but a worldwide phenomenon of moving in reactionary directions. We see the rise of authoritarian thinking in many countries around the world. And so the question is, it's almost like a perpetual question about human existence. How do people treat each other? And how can we predict the future? And the answer is, it's in our hands, but we don't know what direction it's going to go. Past performance is not a predictor of future events. Yeah, It's up to all people in our society. Work for results that are productive in terms of maintaining our ideas that are egalitarian, our ideas of the rights and the dignity of all people in our in our country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, amen to that. Now, if somebody wants to learn more about Iowa Underground Railroad, where would you recommend they should go? State Historical Society, okay. where, where I do my volunteer work on this Iowa Freedom Trail project. The vast majority of the materials that I have worked with over the years are in the what we call the Research Center. That's a combination of the historical library in that building, plus also the state archives. Mm. You have secondary sources. In other words, books. Okay, mm -hmm. You have uh, journals. That yeah. We have the Iowa Historical Journals. The, I the Annals of Iowa started in, in uh, 1863 with a few interruptions in the 1880s and early 1890s. That magazine is still in publication. We have some other magazines that have been in publication in the past, like Iowa Heritage Illustrated. The originally was called the Palimpsest. Uh, that's no longer in publication, but we still have them in the holding. So we have all kinds of journal articles. Uh, we have newspapers. I couldn't even tell you how many, I, but just newspapers from all over the state, from different historical periods, and quite a number of Iowa newspapers that we have on microfilm that come from the Civil War period and even the pre-Civil War period. If you're looking for something in particular, I would encourage anybody to come to the Research Center in the research center, you can at least get the folders that we have on the people that mm -hmm. we've studied, that we've filled out these extended forms that I've shown you yeah. today. Okay. You can also call You can call the historical building. There's also uh, the uh, historical library at the State Historical Society in Iowa City, too. Uh, they have uh, a lot of newspapers that are not in Des Moines and vice versa. I don't know if we're the only state that has a State Historical Society in two locations, but most states don't have. We have one in Iowa City. And then we also have the facility in Des Moines. Now, you've been working on this project of Iowa Underground Railroad for about 10 years. About 10 years. What is some of the things, even you as a historian, you found out they surprised you? <laughs> You're catching me a little off balance right here. <laughs> they're, they're, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking there are all kinds of interesting things I found out. As a lifelong student of history, mm. there are things that I have found interesting. For example, I mentioned, for example, the numbers of people educated at Oberlin College, a radical abolitionist college, who ended up out here in Iowa. I had no idea that Oberlin people, radical abolitionists, were even in Iowa at the time I started working on the project. So it's been a 10-year education that hopefully will continue for many years to come. Anything else you want to add on Iowa Underground Railroad? Not really at this point. Okay. That was Dave Holmgren with the Iowa Historical Society in Des Moines. Thank you for listening to the Iowa Civil Rights History Podcast. Until next time, be safe.